Our sermon text this morning is uh, we are still in Revelation chapter 14. And uh, I'm gonna, our, the verses we're going to look at mainly today are verses 12 and 13. But for the sake of context, we're going to read from verses 6 to, verses thir- to verse 13. So if I can ask you to stand if you're able to do so. Out of respect for the Word of God, uh, give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word this morning. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. John writes, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, uh, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength, into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, those worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow them. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, what does the Bible say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's uh, take a moment and pray and ask God to teach us that we might... Uh, receive the blessing and nourishment of his word by the work of his spirit. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that once again you have given us your word as a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And Lord, we know that we cannot understand these things rightly apart from you teaching us by the work of your spirit. And so we ask once again that you would be pleased to work in us by your Holy Spirit to give us the eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been here uh, over the the past uh, weeks and months, especially the last month, uh, you probably know that uh, my original plan, uh, as we've been going through Revelation, I've tried to take large bits of the of the uh, passages. I've tried to do even a chapter at a time, so we don't spend you know twenty years going through the book and lose the forest for the trees. Um, and my original plan when I got to chapter fourteen was to continue doing that, and then I started looking at the chapter and I realized. There's a lot in this chapter that uh, to, to go through, and it became apparent to me that this particular chapter, out of the ones we've gone through so far, it would be a great disservice not only to the text of Scripture, but also to us to rush through uh, this, this chapter. I think there's a lot of things here in Revelation 14 that you and I would do well, and I think have done well, to slow down and to take some time to think about each thing in this in this chapter and and to think about them and i think there's probably nothing more important in this chapter in that regard for us to slow down and think about than what we have in these two verses verses 12 and 13 because in verses 12 to 13 especially in the context of what i read before it this morning uh, they teach us what it means to finish well 
They teach us what it means as, as a believer to persevere in the faith. Now, as God would have it in the providence of God, two, two things happened this week, one of which we've mentioned a, a couple times already and everybody is fully aware of and still uh, grieving from. But two things have happened this week that, you know, it's one thing to look at a passage as a pastor and study it and you know, translate it from the Greek or Hebrew, read the commentaries and think about what should you say, how does this apply to our lives in the abstract, and, and then sometimes things happen that make you look at it in a, an entirely different light. And as to use Robin's phrase, you know, the, where the rubber meets the road, well, this week the rubber has met the road in more than one case. Uh, two things have happened this week that have made me think about this text much differently. The first of those things obviously happened in the life of our own church family with the passing of our beloved brother in the Lord and father in the faith, uh, Dick Schmiel. You know, everything everything that can be said uh, in these verses, especially verse 13, everything that can be said in these verses can be said, well said, uh, of our dear brother that went home to be with the Lord this past week. You know, we don't preach man, we preach Christ, but uh, Dick exemplified for us the very graces that are mentioned here in this text. And by the grace of God, he's now experiencing the very rest and rewards also spoken of here in this text. Now, the other thing that happened this week you might not be aware of, and I almost say blessed are you if you aren't aware of it, uh, is that uh, there was a rather public announcement of both the divorce and apostasy from the faith of someone who had been a very well-known Christian writer and pastor. He was someone who wrote a book early in his life uh, on courtship and marriage that is reported to have sold over a million copies. Many people have taken their cues on these things from his book. This has brought, I think, sadly, great scandal on the evangelical church in our country. The damage that is still being done by this uh, event, I think, uh, is going to be inflicted upon the church in many ways. Uh, And it's difficult to quantify the scandal and the damage that this kind of a thing does. The words of 1 John 2.19, I think, would sadly seem to apply to this man. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Two extremes, two extreme examples. One, a blessing, and one, a scandal. You know, his falling away would seem to show us that he was never really a believer in the first place. And I say this to you as by way of, of uh, caution and by way of, I think, encouragement, I hope, is that and if you've been a Christian for a short time or a long time, you will, I, I, this is not, I am not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but if you haven't already, you will know someone, maybe someone close, who will fall away from the faith. Probably if I, I don't do this sort of thing, if I were to ask you to raise your hands, if you knew somebody, you'd probably all have your hands up. You'd all have somebody maybe in mind right at this moment. Now, this, this man that I'm talking about, we should certainly pray, pray to our God that he might show him and grant him the grace of repentance and conversion. But as of now, his story serves as a cautionary tale to us in a lot of ways. Uh, his, his sad example, as well as the good example of our brother Dick, should serve as a reminder to us all of the importance of finishing well and by God's grace, uh, doing what our text calls upon every believer to do, and that is, persevere in the faith. 
That's what our passage, I believe, is primarily about, the perseverance of the saints. We're going to look at, Lord willing, three things, I think, from our text. The first thing is the perseverance of the saints, of the believers. The second will be the rest of the saints. And the third thing, the reward of the saints. So the perseverance, the rest, and the reward of the saints. The first thing you see in our text in verse 12 is a call to endure or persevere. It says here in the ESV, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now, a more literal way of rendering this verse uh, would be more like what you might find in the New American Standard Bible, which says here is the perseverance of the saints. The idea that you see in the ESV and others that this is a call to, uh, to us to endure or persevere, it's implied, but it's not. the word itself is not actually in the text. A, a more literal way of putting it is simply, here is the perseverance of the saints. Here is what it looks like, and it certainly does imply a call to us to endure and persevere. Now, in Revelation, this is the second time, almost word for word, this very phrase has found, been found in the book. If you look back one chapter at Revelation 13.10, John writes similarly, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. You, know, you could say, uh, if you haven't been with us the whole time for the study in Revelation, if you haven't read the book much, you could say this is the primary purpose for the believer of the entire book of Revelation. It is a call to endure and persevere in the faith, even in the face of violent persecution. You know, the original readers of this book, the original intended audience of those seven churches that you read of in the early chapters of the book, some of them endured martyrdom for the faith. And so when John writes in this voice from heaven, the Holy Spirit tells them, here is a call for endurance or a call to perseverance. That's the context. To endure in the faith, even in the face of sometimes violent persecution. If I were to ask you, what's the... What's the primary theme or message of Revelation? What do you think, what would you say? Uh, The theme or primary theme or message of the book is the victory and triumph of the Lamb and His church over all His enemies and hers. That's the primary theme or, or, or message of the book, but the primary purpose or application of that message is to strengthen us and encourage us to persevere. William Hendricks in his book, More Than Conquerors, I've recommended that book a number of times throughout these studies. It's probably, I think, the most helpful book on Revelation I've ever read. He says early in that book, he says, In the main, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to comfort the militant church, that is the church here on this earth, the church that's not in heaven yet, is to comfort the militant church in its struggle against the forces of evil. It is full of help and comfort for the persecuted and suffering Christians. Remember, if if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ right now, and if you're reading Revelation and it scares you, in a sense you're reading it wrong. It's written to comfort you and encourage you and to help you persevere in the faith. If you're not a believer in Christ, there's plenty in its pages that should alarm you. But if you're a Christian, it should not be frightening you. If you're reading Christian fiction, even theological fiction, on this book that is designed to frighten you, put the book down because it's not helping you. It's not the way you should be reading this book. This book is written to comfort the persecuted and suffering and afflicted church. 
And what does the what does the perseverance of the faith of the saints look like? What does it mean to, to call the, the believers in Christ to endure or persevere? What does that look like? I believe John describes this perseverance in the latter half of verse 12 when he says, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That is a fitting description of the saints. What's a saint? We use that word, the scripture uses that word a lot. When I say saints, what do you think of? Maybe if you were raised Roman Catholic, you might think of a particular set of uh, highly qualified, gifted, and, and uh, sanctified men. Uh, not, not you, maybe you think. That, that's, there's saints and then there's me. But the Bible doesn't use it that way. The Bible uses saint the same way you would use the word Christian or believer. If you are a believer in Christ and you read the word saint in Scripture, that's you. You are a saint. You are a holy one. You are set apart by God for God in Christ. And so a fitting description of saints or Christians or you if you're a believer is that you are one who does what? Who keeps the commandments of God, not perfectly, and faith, their faith in Jesus. That is a description, is meant to be a right description of everyone who is a true believer in Christ. You keep the faith and you keep God's commandments by faith. But that's also, I think, a fitting description, and I think it's John's, John's purpose in writing it, and the, the, the Holy Spirit's uh, reason for saying it, I think it's a description of what kind of perseverance you are called to do and I am called uh, to in this text. Because what is he saying? We're called to keep two things or guard two things. And what are they? One is keep the faith, the faith in Jesus Christ, and the other one is the commandments of God. That's what persevering in the faith looks like. And that's what persevering in the faith looks like in the face of temptation, that's what persevering in the faith looks like when it comes to being faced with persecution and affliction of many kinds for the faith especially. That's not easy to do if you think about it. Maybe you read that in the abstract and you say, oh, keeping the faith and keeping God's commandments, what's so hard about that? What's hard about that is when things happen, when affliction comes your way, when persecution comes your way. You know that... The, uh, you might remember that Jesus taught many a parable in the Gospels. There's a parable of the sower in Matthew 13. I, I won't quote it verbatim, but he says, you know, he, he's, he's telling a picture story. He says, a sower, a farmer, went out to sow. And what, is it, what does he do? He's casting the seed. Now, no farmer actually, this isn't a how-to manual. The parable isn't meant to teach you how to farm, because no farmer worth his half a weight of his crop is going to take seed and cast it on the road. You'd be silly to do that. You'd be foolish, but this is what this guy does. He's just casting seed everywhere. And there's seed among, uh, that, that it's sown among the rocky soil. Do you remember what happened to that seed? Rocky soil isn't stony soil. It's soil that's thin, and there's rock right underneath of it. You ever plant something in a place like that? What happens? Just like the parable. It shoots up quick. You might be amazed. Wow, look at the growth of that plant it's shot up, it's, it's growing faster than the other ones in the good ground, but then what happens, like now, when the sun comes up, when it's 100 degrees out and it has nowhere for the roots to go? It shrivels up and dies. And what does Jesus say when he interprets that part of the parable? Again, I won't quote it verbatim, but he says, uh, this is such a one that when he first hears the word, he immediately, there's the word, he immediately receives it with great joy. 
But when trials or persecution come because of the word, he quickly does what? Falls away. He doesn't persevere in the faith. Really, we would say he never believed in the first place. That's what is going on there. So it's not easy to do, to persevere in the faith when persecution and affliction come your way. And that's what the original readers of this book knew full well when they heard this read to them. They knew exactly what they were having to persevere in the faith in the face of in that kind of persecution. And that that same kind of thing, that's not ancient church stuff. That happens today. In many parts of the world, it is a dangerous, sometimes fatal thing just to be baptized in the name of Christ and to try to follow him and to persevere in the faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith, you might know, has an entire chapter, not very long, three points, uh, on the subject of the perseverance of the faith, of the saints. And the first point of doctrine in that chapter, chapter 17, says this. This is the first point of it. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, that's Christ, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. It doesn't mean there's no backsliding. It doesn't mean there aren't times in your life or in the people's lives where they seem to kind of, you know, not fall away entirely, but kind of slink away and get away from the church and don't spend time in his word. But God will bring them back. He will bring them to repentance again. They shall certainly, it says, persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. In other words, true believers will not fall away because, and they will be saved. If you want to sum up what that doctrine is, that's it. They will not fall away and they will be saved by grace through faith. That same chapter is quick to point out for us that this perseverance in the faith, quote, depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which arises the certainty and infallibility of it. That's, that's a long, clunky theological statement, but I don't know if you noticed, I tried to emphasize it and probably didn't do a very good job. God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit. The triune God is, what, is who is keeping you by the power of faith. In other words, you will not fall away. Why? Because God, the unchangeable love of God the Father has been set upon you before the foundation of the world. The merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God the Father, for your benefit, interceding for you always, keeps you from falling away. The abiding of the Holy Spirit within you and the seed of God within you keeps you in the faith and keeps you from falling away. All of those things, the work of the triune God is what saves you. In other words, God finishes what he starts. You didn't start that if you're a Christian. You didn't on your own bring yourself to faith. You, you believe, nobody believes for you, but where'd you get that faith from? God, by the work of his Holy Spirit. And God, as Philippians 1, 6 says, he who began a good work in you will what? Will carry it on to completion till when? Until the day of Christ Jesus. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. All through Scripture it says these things. What can separate us from the love of God, from, from the love of God in Jesus Christ? 
Nothing in all creation. That's what Paul says. For this very reason, some, not without reason, prefer to speak of this as the preservation of the saints. Almost sounds the same, the preservation of the saints. True believers persevere in the faith to the end because the triune God of our salvation preserves us in the faith. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1.5, he says that we are, quote, kept, kept, guarded, kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Kept by the power of God through faith. Well, that's the perseverance of the saints. The second thing I want to look at in our text in verse 13 is the rest, the rest of the saints. It says in verse 13, John says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, you know, take a memo. Don't just hear this, but write it down. Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So the voice from heaven, the Holy Spirit, as he's identified in the second part of the verse, tells us of the blessings of those who die in the Lord. Blessings. Wrap your mind around that for a minute. You know, beloved, we, we of all people on this earth, we believers in Christ, need to recover a biblical view of life and a biblical view of death as well. You know, the world out there, the unbelieving world that doesn't know God, doesn't know His Word, is utterly confused about these things. Frankly, they, they're confused because they don't even like to think about these things. They find all kinds of ways to entertain themselves and amuse themselves and keep themselves distracted from thinking about these things, from thinking about eternity and life and death. But uh, that, And that's not a surprise to you if you're a believer. But we as believers in Jesus Christ must not be confused on these simple things because the Bible is abundantly clear on these things, isn't it? Only the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ can remove the sting of death, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. But not just that. Look at what John says here, what he writes here, what he's told to write. It's not just that the sting is removed. What does it say? Blessing. Blessed. To the unrepentant, those outside of Christ, death is anything but a blessing. It's a terror. It's a me- it, it means the end of all rest rather than an entrance into it. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the grace of God and the gospel brings blessings to you in this life. You know, we just had our prayer of thanksgiving and supplication. And you know, to, truth be told, if we were to spend all of our time, if we were to, to try to list all of our blessings, what did we sing this morning, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? If we were to try to list and recite and thank God for all of our blessings, we'd be here all day, all night, and halfway through next week, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't even be done. Because of all the blessings we have in Jesus Christ, we have every blessing, Paul says, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The gospel brings us blessings in this life, and the gospel of Christ even brings us blessings in death, and that first blessing is spoken of here in verse 13, and what is it? It's right there on the page. Rest. Real rest. Real peace. Rest from our labors. Rest from our strife. Rest from persecution. Even rest from our own struggle with sin. That might be the worst battle that any of us really have. You probably tremble at the thought of facing the sword so-called, for the name of Christ. But I think maybe your, yours and mine, our, our hardest struggle in this life is, 
is our own sin. Not somebody else's sin, our own sin. Our own struggle with sin. The Heidelberg Catechism, we looked at this a couple Sundays or so ago. Question 42 says this, Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? It's a good question. Answer, our death is not a payment for our sins. It is not a punishment. It's, if you're a believer, death is not a punishment. It's not God getting the last pound of flesh out of you. It says, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. A die, only a dying to sins. It's an end of our sinning and an entrance into eternal life. The Christian life, we've already said this morning, is a life of faith. And the life of faith, it changes how you live, doesn't it? It should. It's meant to do just that. In this life, we live by faith. We walk by faith. And just about what we read in Hebrews chapter 11, what does it say? That all those Old Testament patriarchs walked by faith. And God was pleased with them for it. However many years the Lord gives us in this life, we must redeem the time for the days are evil. And the Christian life in this life in many ways is a life of labor and hard toil. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can probably uh, identify with that as well. It's a life of serving the living God, and it's a life of living for Jesus Christ. It involves toil. But that's, that's why we're here in this life, to redeem the time for the days or evil. Whether the Lord in His grace saves you early in life, if he saves you young in life and you live a long time, even decades to live and serve, for, serve him, or whether he saves you late in life, whatever time he gives you on this earth, labor for him for the glory of his name. So I have to ask this morning, are, are you redeeming the time? Are you redeeming the time that you have left on this earth in serving Christ? Are you laboring and serving Christ, or are you laboring and serving the things of this world that pass away? Those who serve Christ one day will know the satisfaction of truly resting from their labors. You know, in this life, especially if you're a parent or a grandparent, you get something done and there's always the next thing that has to be done. There's, there's no, you might get a little break, but there's no rest. You don't actually get to rest. You take your vacation and your vacation is over and you're right back. There's no rest. Those who die in the Lord know real rest from their labor and toil. It's like the Sabbath that we practice every Sunday. They get the real Sabbath. They get the real rest. Just as God created all things in six days and rested, we get to actually rest when we're at home with the Lord. Well, that brings us to the the second blessing that's talked about here in verse 13 that's pronounced upon all those who die in the Lord, and that is their deeds follow them. Their deeds follow them. Not only will all those who persevere in the faith know rest from their labors, but they will also know the joy of being graciously rewarded for those labors as well. Not only are the good works of believers the fruits and evidences so-called of a true and living faith, but our confession of faith tells us that God is even, quote, pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Why is that? If you're a believer in Christ, why and how is it that God can reward your good works? Have you, on your best day as a Christian, have you ever done one good work that wasn't mixed with some level of self-interest or sin? One. Have you done one? 
No. My, my best works, your best works are mixed bags at best, to, to use the way that the words of the confession, they are accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. That's an understatement. Why is God willing and able to reward them then? Why is he willing to accept them? When he sees, we, we see the imperfections, God really sees the imperfections. So how does he reward your good works as a Christian? How is he able to do that? Because he looks upon them in his son. He looks upon your good works and accepts them and rewards them the same way, if you're a Christian, that he looks upon you and accepts you with all your imperfections and sins. He looks upon you in his Son. He's talking about justification. Justification involves, what, two things. The forgiveness of all your sins because Christ died to pay for them all. And what's the other side of that coin? He accepts you as a believer as righteous in his sight. You're not righteous. I'm not righteous. But God accepts you completely as righteous in his sight. How? Is God, does he put blinders on? No, he accepts you because he accepts you in Christ. You are, if you're a Christian, you are as accepted before a holy God as Christ is. Because you're, you're accepted in him. That's, that's justification. And God looks upon your good works with all their weaknesses and, and imperfections the same way he looks upon you. And he is pleased, well pleased to reward them. You know, it's significant in our text that the Holy Spirit says their deeds follow them. Follow them. That's a very important word in our text. Joel Beakey writes the following. He says, The sweet pronouncement of the Spirit does not say that the deeds of Christians will precede them. As they enter into the presence of the heavenly King, the redeemed will not say, I am coming here on the basis of my deeds. You don't ever want to do that. There is no entry for those who come on that basis, for weighed in the balance of God, their deeds will be found wanting. Rather, they will come on the basis of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in his glorious sacrifice on the cross and his marvelous resurrection. But when they look behind them, to their astonishment, they will see that their deeds are following them one by one. All that they did out of faith in God for his glory and according to his commandments will follow them, and they will bow their heads and be amazed that he should have done so much through their short lives. You probably have no idea what God has done through you yet. None of us probably do. You probably don't. In fact, most other people don't notice what you do. No one probably knows who most of us are much less what we've done, but God does. God sees it, God uses it, and God rewards it. Brothers and sisters, a life lived by faith in Christ for the glory of Christ is the only life not utterly wasted. It's the only life not wasted. Everything else is the biggest waste of time in human history. That's a life, a life lived for Christ is a life that actually matters. A life that is lived for Christ is a life that God uses to make a difference for eternity. That's the kind of life that God is pleased to graciously reward as well. He gives rest and he gives rewards to his people. You know, if we were to spend the rest of our time here this morning going over all the many passages in Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, that talk about rewards that God blesses his people with, 
for faith working through love. We'd be here all day. I encourage you, if you have a concordance at home, if you have a Bible software, go to the ESV online and you can search and just put the word reward or rewards. And there will be so many scripture references, you will be shocked. It's there all the time. It's there. God rewards his people for their things, their deeds done through faith. We'd be here all morning if we were to go through all those passages one by one. And it would be a good time well spent. Whatever God has called you to, out of obedience to him and faith in Christ, do all that for the glory of Christ, and it will not go unnoticed by God. It will not go unrewarded by God. You know, many of the good works you do, nobody notices, nobody throws a parade. It doesn't make the paper, nobody reads the paper. It doesn't make whatever news, however you get your news. The world doesn't celebrate it. Are you a mother or a grandmother seeking to help raise children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? You're not celebrated by the... In fact, our culture doesn't celebrate such things. Our culture tells you you should let the state raise your kids. And you're, you're wasting your time. You should be out working, making money, the more important thing. But God rewards it. God is well pleased to reward and bless you for it, as well as blessing your children. Your children and grandchildren will rise up and call you blessed. Proverbs thirty-one, twenty-eight. Are you working hard at your job? Are you laboring at a job to glorify Christ and to provide for your family? That's a godly calling. God notices it, even if nobody else does. Fathers, grandfathers, are you laboring to bring up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? God sees that too, and he will graciously reward it. Are you serving your neighbors, doing things to help those in need with no fanfare? Are you laboring in the church as a good churchman or a good church officer? We need such men. We need more such men. Paul says it's a noble task. It's also a noble task that God notices and God is pleased to use and reward. Are you supporting the work of the gospel with your time, talent, and treasure? Are you supporting missions? Do you know someone who is a missionary? Do you, are you thinking about being a missionary yourself? Nobody celebrates missionaries. Most people with half a brain don't celebrate pastors either. But God rewards those things. You know, most people look at a job of a missionary and think, what a wasted life. Why would you want to go live somewhere out in the boonies without the Internet, without all these things, without all the good things we have here? They're looking at it backwards. God, God sees that. That matters. God uses it, and God rewards such things too. In short, are you seeking to keep the faith and keep the commandments of God in, in every area of your life, despite the affliction and problems and troubles that come your way? That's persevering in the faith, and that is the kind of life of faith that God is pleased to reward. That is not wasted labor. Not only will you know rest from your labors that one day, but one day your works will follow you into glory, and you will finally get to see what great things and things that matter for eternity that God has done through you by his grace. Amen. Let's, let's pray.